0: You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. You're listening to Metamorphosis, a podcast designed to help medical students navigate their medical careers. My name is Sarah. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Holly, a palliative care physician who is the medical director of the BC Cancer Provincial Pain and Symptom Management Palliative Care Program, clinical professor at the UBC Department of Medicine, and head of the UBC Division of Palliative Care. Dr. Holly, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. To start, can you share, what is palliative care, and what was your path to becoming a palliative care physician?
1: Okay. All right. Well, thank you uh, for inviting me to join this. And um, so my initial path started when I was a medical student. I was working in the UK in a little town called Dorchester in the south of England. And um, I was being taught by some really exceptional internists, three internists, but we were given a lot of responsibility. Essentially, after hours, there were two of us that ran the whole hospital, and they had a surgical ward, medical ward, and a children's ward, plus a, a little emergency room. And um, so we basically got to do a whole lot of stuff without much help. And um, I found that the parts of the job that I enjoyed most were, this, were the ones which involved communication with patients, and especially trying to help them when they were seriously ill. Um, So as I went through my subsequent training, I sort of gravitated towards um, those kinds of of opportunities. And um, so it was a natural fit for me when they invented palliative care because it didn't really exist then. Shows how old I am.
0: (laughs) So currently you work as a palliative care specialist at BC Cancer and you are the medical director of the Provincial Pain and Symptom Management Palliative Care Program. What do you do as a palliative care physician and how do you spend your time?
1: Well, my palliative care role is slightly different at BC Cancer to that of um, a lot of other palliative care physicians, because I'm not doing care in the community. I'm not doing home visits. Um, I'm not going to long-term care facilities, um, and I don't work in a hospice or on a palliative care unit. So my inpatient palliative care practice is with an inpatient acute oncology unit, as well as the majority of my time being in ambulatory care. Also, my model of care is um, the bowtie model, which hopefully many of the um, students and people listening to this today will be familiar with, but it includes the possibility of survivorship. So about a third of my patients I'm seeing in the survivorship context uh, where they've had cancer and uh, they're living with the consequences. Um, often people don't bounce back to normal just because their cancer is being cured, often they have really significant um, symptoms that persist, as well as psychological and, and social adjustment issues. So I do a lot of the survivorship, I do a lot of concurrent disease-modifying care alongside palliative care, uh, and I also uh, see a number of people who have advanced disease and who are transitioning towards end-of-life care, so it's about one-third of each of the three categories. Um, so in my week, I work part-time at BC Cancer. I have one day a week, which is supposed to be for provincial administration. So I, I lead the, um, the medical leader of the team. So I have to attend quite a lot of meetings where I'm trying to essentially advocate for palliative care and the infrastructure that's set up to support um, healthcare professionals to look after patients is, is functional. So there's the administration and then my my clinical role, which is 0.5 FTEs, so two days a week, long days, plus on-call one in three at the moment, Um, so a fair bit of callback. Um, And then the other two days of the week, I uh, have a position at the UBC Division of Palliative Care as the division head. And so that's primarily being um, an advocate for good teaching, uh, both at the undergrad and postgrad levels. Um, so in terms of what actual work palliative care involves, um, when I'm with patients, the first part is primarily symptom management, and a lot of it is pain management. And I'm the sort of tertiary, tertiary referral sort of clearance house for all the difficult cancer pain syndromes. So I, I'm the one that has to approve funding, for example, for intrathecal infusion pumps or spinal cord stimulators. Um, I do the referrals to you know, the neurosurgery department for consideration of cordotomy. Um, and I do quite a bit of work with lidocaine infusions, which is not um, generally available easily in many other centres. Certainly not for ambulatory patients. So um, I do. I don't do a lot of routine basic symptom management. I have you know people that do that. They they give me the difficult ones. Uh, But I do enjoy the the communication and the the contact with the longitudinal relationship with patients. Often I will continue to follow people even after they've um, been stabilized, if they were really tough to get sorted. So number one is symptom management. Um, Number two is the advanced care planning, um, communication, coordination making sure that um, people's goals of care are mutually understood by the providers and the patients, and having the more difficult goals of care or advanced care planning discussions. So there's clinical care with symptom management, there's um, the communication, and then the last one is the coordination. So trying to work with the, um, the different health authorities and with the um, community organizations so that there's a sort of a, a cradle to grave type of approach where no matter where, where a patient is in the system, they can still access quality palliative care. So there's quite a lot of meetings I have to go to for that as well. I spend a lot of time on Zoom.
0: Clearly you have a very diverse week. What do you enjoy most about your work and what are some of the challenges?
1: Um, I, generally, I enjoy most of it. I, even some of the meetings I quite enjoy because it can be satisfying when you can change things. I think when you when you start out in clinical practice, uh, you know, as, as a graduating medical student, the first and correctly, the most important thing that you need to focus on is clinical skills. Like You have to be able to do the job. You have to be good at it. You have to be able to you know know about the illnesses. You have to be able to diagnose them. You have to be able to talk to patients well. Um, and, and provide good quality care. And I think for the first few years out, that's all I focused on. You know, I just wanted to be as good as I possibly could at looking after patients. And then as you get older, and you become aware that you kind of know as much as anybody else does about your particular field. Um, once you realize that there's stuff you don't know, because nobody else knows it, like it's not the imposter syndrome, or well, somebody must know. So just I just have to work harder or study harder. To, to be able to do this you realize that no there is stuff out there that nobody knows how to do um, and so then you have to get into research um, and then you realize that other people know less than you so you need to teach because you're not going to be around forever to make sure people get good care so in order to give people good care you have to teach uh, whether you enjoy teaching or not is relevant it's an obligation because you, you can't look after everybody yourself so I think that's that tends to be what happens with a lot of Academics who've come from clinical pathways, like they didn't start out as academics, um, is that you you realize that research and teaching are essential in order to be able to deliver quality care. Um, So I'm not sure I've answered the question there, but um, in terms of enjoyment, I enjoy all of it. And I still love a really great clinical consult, like a new consult that comes in where it's something that I can say, I know about this, I, I can diagnose this, I can fix this. Um, and I can communicate it to the patient, and I know they're going to feel better, that's extraordinarily satisfying. Um, and you, you, I hope I'll never use, lose the, um, the, the thrill with that. Um, but it's it's also quite satisfying to see something, like see a, a trainee that you've had come through as a resident and do a really good job with the patient. Uh, that, that is also really satisfying. And, and get it, having a clinical trial get published and people actually say, I reference this because I changed what I did because of this. You know it's it's really fun
0: you kind of touched on this at the very beginning but you mentioned the palliative care didn't really exist when you were a medical student so looking to the future how do you see the field of palliative care evolving
1: um i i think it's going to go through a sort of um up and down um at the moment we're still in the stage where we 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 have knowledge but we need to do more. So we need to do more research. Um, we need to be better at actually what we do. Um, so we're in the sort of early development stages of some of the, the skills and the, um, the, the practices that we that we use. But I think then there'll be a period of time where it gradually becomes normal. Uh, and then everybody will be trained as medical students and, and residents and, and with CME that delivery of good palliative care will be something that's just considered good medical practice, um, like it's not specialist anymore. And, and you know, eventually, I, I think there'll be much less of a need for palliative care specialists. There'll always be a need for people to advance any discipline. Um, there'll always be need, a need for people to do the research and teaching. But I think that the, the general level of, of competence will be so much more even across the board. And it's it, it's going to be core competency that I'm hoping that we won't actually feel the need to to rely so heavily on specialists because any competent family doctor or specialist could easily attend to basic palliative care um, skills.
0: That so beautifully segues into my next question. A lot of students won't end up in palliative care. They'll find their ways to other specialties. And so for those students, how can they incorporate the principles of palliative care into their future practice?
1: Well, a lot of it is just about having the knowledge to start with. Um, so you know, reading appropriately, um, making sure that the palliative care parts of the curriculum that are delivered and there's not very much, I have to say, it's better than it used to be, but it's still really quite, quite weak. Um, there's not a lot in the curriculum. So try to identify when you see it um, and, and make sure that you learn that. Uh, make sure that even if something's not examinable it doesn't mean that it's not important Uh, things like communication skills and coordination skills are they're not easy to examine Uh, and a lot of uh, medical school exams focus very much on just knowledge and that is not always the best way to assess somebody's competence so use every opportunity to have your communication and coordination skills evaluated uh, including asking the patients at the end of the day, it's how it matters to patients. So don't just ask for evaluation by, um, by your supervisors, ask your patients when, you, when they're going home from hospital. For example, if you've looked after them when you're their resident on the CTU um, or a student on CTU, say, tell me about your experience during this admission. What was good? What was bad? Could I have done anything differently to have made your experience less difficult or, or whatever? Um, so including the, the patients as informants uh, for your future practice is probably the, the most important thing to do. I mean, patients are people first and patients second. Um, so really thinking about that. And then the other thing is try, trying to take any opportunity that you have um, to interact with palliative care specialists and watch them. For example, if um, if a palliative care physician comes to your ward and does a family meeting on one of your patients, sit in with them and don't just be looking at you know the patient and the family, be thinking, what how is this physician approaching this? What did they do? What worked well? What would I have done differently if I was doing it? Uh, because none of us are perfect. And you, what we want you to do is pick all the best bits from all the people that you work with. So you can form your own practice and your own style, uh, which is hopefully a, a kind of best of everything you've been exposed to with a little bit of um, of your own personality embedded in it as well.
0: I know something else quite important to your work is that you have a very team-based approach. And so one example of this is that you created an interdisciplinary conference with colleagues from interventional radiology, orthopedic surgery, anesthesia. What inspired the creation of this conference and why is collaboration so important to your work?
1: Well, again, this is, this is not something that I set out to do. Um, this is something that became essential in order to get through the day. Uh, because I was spending a lot of time trying to make decisions that I didn't feel that I should be doing on my own because I'm not an interventional radiologist. Um, And I needed an interventional radiologist basically with all my patients that I was thinking about a procedure on, because it wasn't like I could order the procedure, have them see the patient and then give me feedback because it doesn't work like that. I I didn't even know what to order. Um, So I needed to talk to them so that they could get the clinical information to make their best decision about what would be most appropriate from the technical perspective. And I need them to tell me what they could do to see how it can contribute to their clinical situation. Um, So, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. So I'm the one that has the information Mm -hmm. about the patient's goals of care and their prognosis and their function, you know, what's important to them. So it just became essential that all the people involved with the patient met up and talked about them in one place at the same time so that we could come up with a plan all together. Otherwise, you you have thousands of emails and all patient is going to see multiple different people getting different information from all of them. And, uh, you know, half the time they're dead before they get a decision made, you know, so it's it's, just it's a real time saving device. Um, If you can get everyone together, you can come up with a decision and a plan and then off you go.
0: So on top of your clinical and administrative responsibilities, you're also a researcher and you're currently leading an investigator-initiated clinical trial looking at the use of medicinal cannabis for cancer-related symptom management. Mm -hmm. To provide some context, can you just describe the current place of cannabis therapy in cancer care?
1: Right, so at the moment, uh, the medical role for it is in symptom management. Uh, There is some evidence, though it definitely needs to be beefed up, hence the need for doing the study. Uh, But there is some evidence that at least THC containing products can be beneficial for cancer-related nausea and anorexia, and that balanced Mm -hmm. products with THC and CBD one-to-one mix um, can be helpful for cancer-related pain. Mm -hmm. But that's about the limit of it. And yet what's happening in real life is that probably half of my patients in the Pain and Symptom Management Palliative Care Clinic are taking cannabis-based products for one reason or another. Some of them are taking them appropriately for management of nausea or pain, but some of them are taking them for other other symptoms for which the evidence base is very slim, like um, anxiety and sleep disturbance. Um, And um, a lot of them are taking products which are not the ones that have actually been studied in the pain and nausea role, Um, They're taking things that weren't available when those studies were done, particularly CBD. And there's quite a lot of of marketing of high dose CBD. Um, So quite a few patients are taking that thinking that it's like medical cannabis that doesn't get you high. Uh, But it's not. It's a completely different product. CBD and THC do completely different things. They're like two completely different drugs. When you put them together, they do better we think, uh, but we don't know enough about how much of each one you need for each particular symptom. And there's also a lot of other stuff that's in medical cannabis products, which hasn't had a lot of research yet, but a lot of them have significant potential for symptom management. So there's there's just really a a dearth of, um, of actual evidence for us to base therapeutic recommendations with individual patients, which is what I'm hoping that the trial will do. Um, We're testing a high THC, a high CBD, and a one-to-one ratio for nausea, pain, sleep disturbance, and anxiety. But the other thing I should mention is that in real life, again, many patients are taking cannabis-based products, particularly high-dose CBD, in an attempt to try to cure their cancer. And that is currently not evidence-based at all. Um, There is even some suggestion that um, heavy recreational uses of of cannabis, uh, particularly that smoke it, have an increased risk of some cancers, particularly testicular cancer and bladder cancer. So it's not that, oh, well, it's harmless, so, you know, why not do it? Um, It actually has potential for harm as well. It can also interfere with some of the immune therapies, which are now proving to be quite, you know, game changers in modern oncology. And the immune therapy needs to have full function of the immune system in order to kill the cancer cells. And if you take something like CBD, which is an anti-inflammatory or has an anti-inflammatory effect, um, then you might minimize the uh, strength of the immune response to the cancer and basically sabotaging it. And there is but good clinical trial evidence that the response rates for immune therapies in patients who are using cannabis, either recreationally or medically, are reduced, though the first study didn't show an impact on survival. Uh, but I would think it it uh, it like it makes sense, if you're not responding as well, that it will have an impact on survival. So it's certainly not harmless, and in some situations uh, may be harmful. And I think it's something we need to wait a long time before we actually uh, make any recommendations to patients on other than, at this moment, avoidance in terms of cancer treatment.
0: You touched on this already a little but what sparked the idea to start researching medicinal cannabis in the context of palliative
1: care? And this comes from patients. Patients are asking me questions and I didn't know the answer to them. And then I realized that nobody knew the answer to them. So, well, somebody's got to figure it out. Um, So I'm as good as anybody, I'll have a go. Um, so that's essentially what happened. I, have, I had a couple of patients, one particularly um, who I remember, a young man who um, is, is really admirable, um, living with a lifelong, life-threatening medical condition, which is painful. And um, I was trying to manage his pain with conventional medications. And he came and told me, he said, Pepe, you know what works better? It's this cannabis butter I've been making. And so he told me how he made it, and um, I learned about it as a result of him explaining how helpful it was. And then I was able to share that knowledge with other patients. Um, so that, that was really what made me think this is not something that's you know just an excuse to get high. You know, people taking cannabis who have cancer-related symptoms and many other serious chronic illnesses, they're not taking it to get high. They're actually taking it because they just want to feel normal. Um, and I, I think that they deserve to be treated with respect and that they, they need to have help to um, analyze the actual results of, of these interventions in a clinical trial setting so that we can give them constructive and useful advice and, and also maybe even help to get the medications covered because at the moment people are spending a lot of money sometimes. On, on these products, some of which are not proven, but some of which are quite helpful but not covered and it can cost them hundreds of dollars a month just to stay well, which it's not covered like, not like you would get your hydromorphone or your anti-inflammatories or your antihypertensives or your antibiotics covered. Just because it's got the stigmatization of being a, a recreational drug. Um, it's excluded from all of those um, those facilitators.
0: So for your clinical trial, it's investigator initiated, meaning that you're both the principal investigator and the sponsor. What are some of the biggest benefits and challenges of this dual role?
1: So maybe the benefit first. <laughs> uh, benefit first is I get to design the study um, and I get to do all the interpretation and, um, and it's, it's my thing. So if it goes badly, I get the blame. But if it goes well, I'll, I'll feel proud of it. Um, But um, the challenges with that is that it's a lot of work. Um, To be a sponsor and to be an an investigator, they are two different things. And the majority of medical research is done by drug companies or extrinsic groups who design a protocol and then they give it out there. They recruit investigators to actually do the study for them. So you work for the sponsor effectively and you have to follow all of their instructions, do what they tell you. Um, and so it's not your kind of intellectual property, if you know what I mean. At the end of the day, you're just working for someone else. And, and it's, it's good to do that work. I mean, that work needs to be done and the sponsors, the drug companies don't have access to patients. They need clinicians to do that. So you can choose which studies you do and you can make sure that it's done well and make sure that your patients um, benefit or at least aren't harmed by participation. But when you're the principal investigator and the sponsor, um, it, it gives you so much more control, but it just increases the work enormously. And it's something I learned on the fly. Nobody ever sent me on a course to learn how to be uh, you know, a clinical trialist. I, there were some online modules I could do, but frankly, they were very dry and um, not that hopeful. I know because you did them as well. So, <laughs> um, I mean, they're, they're not worse than useless. They, they do give you some background information, but they're certainly not sufficient in order to be able to do it. So I made a lot of mistakes when I was going through my early clinical trials experience, and I've done a number of other clinical trials, some of them quite difficult, like um, I had to do Manuka honey for radiation-induced mucositis. I had to get the honey irradiated, and I had to negotiate with a honey company to get the product donated and had to dev- design all the assessment tools. And, you know, it was, it was massive. Um, another one on uh, docusate added to seneside-based bowel protocol, uh, which showed that docusate didn't work. that was the first study to do that, subsequently confirmed by a group in, in Calgary. So now docusate's not in a load of bowel protocols, or well, certainly not the recently done evidence-based bowel protocols. So I'm very proud of that, that was me that did that. That's what basically got DocuSate out of the Western world's bowel protocols, saving hundreds of millions of dollars and lots of stomach space for patients. So you do get that pride when you do it, Um, but um, it was was nicer than working for a sponsor. I have done a couple of sponsored studies, which are, you know, they just work, but they're okay.
0: Yeah, it sounds like an incredible amount of work either way, but it must be so satisfying at the end when you finish the trial, that's your own and you have the results that are able to directly benefit patients and
1: their care. It is, I mean, maybe partly because of what I do, but you know, you only live once. And if Mm -hmm. you wanna make a footprint in the world, you want to leave something behind that's useful and certainly um, a a really important piece of clinical knowledge that changes the way people care for patients, then I I think that's one of the most satisfying things you can do really. Um,
0: Along the lines of changing patient care, you place a lot of emphasis on destigmatizing medicinal cannabis. Why is this so important to you? And what does that look like?
1: Well, I've just seen it so often, even in people who should know better. I, they call it the giggle factor. You know, when I'm when I'm doing talks about medical cannabis and I get asked to do them quite often, you know, they often there's this sort of snigger snigger goes on in the audience. And I even had one one talk I was doing and then one of the people in the audience who was a physician you know should have known better he said have you ever tried it like I mean how relevant is that well no I haven't had my appendix out either that doesn't mean I don't think that appendicectomies are a good idea or that I'm not qualified to talk about it I haven't had cancer pain either does that mean I'm not qualified to be able to help people like how inappropriate is that so you know I find that there's a lot of unconscious bias uh, but there's there's particularly unconscious bias with anything which is associated with substance use disorders because of stigmatization of those people. Um, Talking about opioids, I have the same trouble. Um, And um, it just annoys me the heck out of me. Um, If they put themselves in the patient's position where they were chronically nauseated, you know, couldn't eat, had pain, couldn't sleep, feeling anxious, and there's something out there which is thought that might help with all of those symptoms, like, why would you tell somebody... That you know, that they shouldn't have it, or or worse still, saying, Oh, I don't know about that. You know, this willful ignorance that people have when there's perfectly good information out there, it's not hard to find. And telling patients that, oh, well, I I don't I don't know anything about it, so I can't talk about it. And you wouldn't say that if someone came and asked you about, you know, whether they should have a coronary artery bypass or not. You know, yeah, they're not an interventional cardiologist, they don't know the first thing about coronary artery bypass, but they're still going to tell their patients, yeah, this is a good idea if you've got block arteries you know, and they wouldn't feel weird about it. There's so much weirdness about medical cannabis and opioids um, that I I just feel that people should be aware of their biases and and how they affect the patients because patients get terribly upset. They feel really bad. It affects their self-image and it makes them feel dirty when they've been treated like that by somebody who should be helping them. Um, But I don't think people realize sometimes how negative little comments or little looks can make people feel
0: That's incredible work. To end on a positive note, for students interested in palliative care and treatments such as medicinal cannabis, where can they go to learn more?
1: So, well, for palliative care, we have a very good textbook. It's the um, case-based manual, Palliative Medicine, a case-based manual, which is uh, co-authored by many Canadian palliative care physicians. Um, and the new edition of that is going to be coming out very soon. Um, we've we finished it now and it's in print in Oxford in England. Um, so that will be coming out. So I'd strongly recommend that you get a copy of the case based manual. Um, the library for UBC actually has a copy of the previous edition, one for every student um, in, in well, it's a one, there's one year's worth uh, for everybody. So there's no reason why you would not be able to get one out. Um, And though it is uh, it has been significantly updated with uh, the new edition, it's still very well worth reading. And then each edition is not exactly the same. It's not like we have the same chapters and we update them. We actually have new chapters and different topics covered. So even with the new one, it's still worthwhile reading the old ones, plural as well. So, number one, get a good um, a good reference and read it. Uh, number two, attend any courses that are offered. And there's, there is an online medical cannabis course at UBC. As far as I'm aware, it's the only one that universities offer in um, in, in Canada. I'm working with a group called Pallium, uh, which is a national organization which is dedicated to palliative care education, but interprofessional multidisciplinary education with federal funding from Health Canada to quite a, like $6 million a year. So it's a big group. And they do online courses as well as in-person courses. They're called LEAP courses. Um, And we're working on um, having a a medical cannabis education course. Um, So hopefully within the next year, that will be out. Um, It's being done in conjunction with the undergrad committee of the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians that I'm on. So um, I think it'll be a really good product when we get there. It's just a lot of work to put it together. Um, Otherwise, um, just talk to your patients, uh, particularly about medical cannabis, just talk to your patients and never say, you know, are you using medical cannabis or or do you take marijuana, these are not helpful ways to ask but I I now just say, um, has medical cannabis been of any benefit, or has it been helpful. And then if they say, oh, no, I've never tried it, you can at least make them feel comfortable that it was something that they could talk about in future. And if they have tried it, then they'll say, oh, I'm so glad you asked. You know, I haven't felt comfortable talking to my family doctor or my oncologist or my nephrologist or whatever about this, but I I would really like to ask you some questions about it. Um, So it kind of opens the door to that discussion. So that's with the medical cannabis. Um, and then going back to the palliative care, uh, you know, it's it's just about trying to gather every little bit of um, of help you can in order to form your practice as you go through your training. Um, and don't think that if you don't do a palliative care rotation that you haven't been exposed because you probably have been exposed to palliative care competencies and, and seen good palliative care done, but maybe not under a palliative care specialist umbrella. We unfortunately don't have the capacity to be able to offer every medical student an elective in, in a formal palliative care setting. Um, we just don't have enough um, enough staff, basically, to do it. and We don't have enough sites to be able to do it. Um, so if you are able to do one, then do. But try to get as much experience as you can from non-palliative care specialists when you see them doing things that you identify are palliative care competencies, because uh, they may you not know, not even realise that's what they're doing. They they're just good at it because they they figured it out for themselves, you know. Or maybe they maybe they were taught and now they're modelling it.
0: Well, Dr. Holly, thank you so much for sharing with us about your work as a palliative care specialist,
1: your research in medicinal cannabis. I think this will be quite helpful for a lot of students. Well, no, thank you so much for asking me. It was actually quite fun. I, I had to think about some things a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad.
0: Thank you all for listening. For more episodes from Metamorphosis, look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network.